0: Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God and Father, God who became flesh and made His dwelling among us, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us all as we begin to think about these texts that describe your coming. That you would be near to our hearts, we sinners. That you would be teaching us. you would be near to me, a sinner, as I preach. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as I think about this text that we read for this morning from Luke 1, this really happened. <laughs> that, in a nutshell, is what I want us to think about this morning. And really, for the whole series of Advent sermons, that this really happened. The Gospel of Luke, from which we read this morning, begins with these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke's this doctor, he becomes a Christian, and we know from the book of Acts, which he also wrote, that he travels with the Apostle Paul to build up the church, and he's writing just a couple decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's saying, here's the deal, I wasn't a part of this when it was happening either. I wanted to record an account of Jesus, of what he said and did. So I talked to eyewitnesses, I checked testimonies, I collated dates, and I wrote it all down so that you can know about it. Just to say that Luke's trying to say this really happened. We can get kind of weird about Christmas. Parts of its imagery, the happy family, the stable, the manger, they've gotten so tied up with just the kind of sentimentality of the holiday that we treat them as just another part of the nice kind of story that we tell our kids. It's Frosty and Ebenezer Scrooge and the baby Jesus here to help us celebrate the most wonderful time of the year. We hear it like a fable. A story that starts once upon a time. But that's not how Luke records it. In the next verse, as he leads into the narrative of Jesus' birth, he says, instead of once upon a time, he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiha." So this is not a fairy tale kingdom. Herod the Great actually ruled the part of the Middle East under Rome um, from 37 B.C., to 4 BC where Israel was. Zacharias was an actual dude, a member of the tribe of Levi. And if you could look up his rotation at the temple based on the division of the tribe he's in, you'd know exactly when Luke's talking about. It's like saying in George Washington's second term as president, Luke is recounting something that actually happened. And in this real story, right, an angel appears to Zacharias, and his wife Elizabeth gets miraculously pregnant, even though she's old and has struggled with infertility. And then in our text this morning, Luke says that in Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, an angel appeared to this girl named Mary to give her some news. So there was an actual day that dawned like this day today, around 6 BC, when the events of our story occurred. If you were there, you could actually have seen this person named Mary. And you could have actually seen the angel. You could actually have leaned against the wood of the doorframe. Or held the girl when she cried. She probably would have after this happened to her. This really happened. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to read this story. But not as a fable. Not as a fairy tale. Mary is not some moral ideal. The angel doesn't just stand for some principle. Marries a young woman with blood in her veins and trembling fingers and breath that catches in her throat when this heavenly being appears. I want us to just walk through that story, that real story, and ask what it all means. So let's go. We're just going to walk through the text, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. So this happened in Nazareth. And look, Nazareth is not some cultural center of the ancient world. It isn't Rome or Jerusalem. It's this backwater town, kind of this backward town, actually, in the eyes of the people of its day. In John 1:46, when the future disciple Philip goes and tells his brother, the future disciple Nathaniel, about this guy Jesus he's met from Nazareth, Nathaniel's reply is, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Which is basically the first century version of a redneck joke. God sends the angel Gabriel, one of the two angels named in the Bible, an angel who appears in the book of Daniel and gives these miraculous visions. God sends Gabriel to this backwater town to talk to this redneck girl who we then meet. In verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And then we meet Mary. And the text tells us she's a virgin, which matters because of what comes in a minute. And we learn that she's engaged to this guy named Joseph. And look to get the picture right in your head. This is an era when girls were given in you know engagement in marriage when they were like 13 or 14 years old. All right, so we're talking about this young teenager. Think about a 13-year-old that you know. She's going about her business, planning a wedding in this poor backwater town. And this angel appears. And already before we get to the miraculous events, I feel like that should start to tell us something. We often have a very worldly way of thinking about how God works. We think he starts at the center, with the important people, with those who are really gifted and visible. We think he starts revival and change in our country through places like New York or Washington or L.A. But God is showing up to change the world in this story in the first century equivalent, of Appalachia, God's story does not unfold along worldly paths. It is a teenager in Nazareth, not a princess in Jerusalem, who is at the center of his plan to save the world, which we need to remember. We often buy into the idea that our lives are inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, that we are nobodies from nowhere, we think, and so we don't matter that much. And that might be true in the eyes of the world, but it is certainly not true in the eyes of God. Francis Schaeffer, uh, this Christian writer and apologist, he wrote this great little essay called No Little People, No Little Places. No Little People, No Little Places. And this is his whole argument that God doesn't view things the way the world does. Nobody is insignificant in his plans. Here's how he says it. We must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight there are no little people and no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under his lordship in the whole of life, may by God's grace change the flow of our generation. Do you hear that? If we are consecrated people... In God's place, for us, our lives matter just as much as Billy Graham's or Martin Luther's. Stillman Valley and Byron and Davis Junction and Rockford are just as much at the center of God's kingdom as New York or London or Rome. We, like Mary, are a part of God's plan. Like her, if we are consecrated to God, we are changing the world story that goes on though the angel comes to mary and he says in verse 29 he says to her greetings you who are highly favored the lord is with you mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be mary was greatly troubled it says which is a kind of wooden bible translation way of saying that she is totally freaked out all right she's terrified and with good reason. An angel has just appeared to her. We don't always feel that because we have this totally wrong picture of angels in our heads, right? When you picture an angel in your head, you either picture this kind of like long-haired skinny dude in a, in a dress or for many of us, you picture you, you actually picture a cherub, right? Like Cupid, this like baby, this fat baby with little wings. And when we think about angels appearing, that's what we think about, like Cupid popping up with his little bow. But that is not... How the Bible treats angels. Angels in the Bible are the soldiers of God's army. Many of the times that angels appear in Scripture, it's to kill people. Even when they're not, like when Joshua meets the angel of the Lord before battle, he falls on his face expecting to die. Angels in Scripture. Are not fat babies in wings. If you need a mental image, picture like this nine foot tall giant, right? With like glowing skin and flaming eyes and a giant sword. That's what an angel is like. And he says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary doesn't know what's going on. She's just minding her own business. She's nobody special. And this happens. I mean, it doesn't say, but if I had to guess, probably what she's thinking in this moment is something like, is this what happens right before you die? You know, I mean, like, is that what it means? But then the angel goes on in verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So we hear this and think, of course, this is Jesus. But here's the thing. Mary doesn't know what this angel is talking about, right? She doesn't have the benefit of the the whole New Testament written about the events after this point to clarify for her. So she's probably thinking two things, right? First, she's thinking that there has to be some mistake. That this angel has the wrong Mary. What the angel describes in verses 32 and 33, a king to reign on David's throne forever, Mary knows sort of what that's about. That's describing the Messiah, this promised king that Israel has been waiting on for 600 years, the one who's supposed to return God's rule to God's people, the one who will sit on the throne for eternity. And in fact, she clearly questions whether this could be right. She asked the angel in, in verse 34, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And part of that, yes, is probably about the mechanics of how she's about to give birth to the Messiah, given how babies usually are given birth to. But I think the question is also a broader one. Mary saying, are you sure you know what you're talking about? Because it seems kind of hard to believe. Not only that, not only is it just hard to believe that the Messiah would be coming to this girl, but while it's easy for us to miss, what the angel is telling Mary also has to be terrifying because it would ruin her life. It can ruin her life. So in the first place, she's about to get married, right? She's engaged. And she and Joseph, if not, you know, but she's going to have to come to him and tell him that she's pregnant. And do you think that Joseph is going to believe that this baby is from the Holy Spirit overshadowing her? He doesn't, in fact. In Matthew, which tells kind of Joseph's side of this account, the angel Gabriel has to then come to him and convince Joseph that this baby is from God as well. Could ruin her marriage. And it will ruin her reputation. It will. Her reputation and Joseph's if he stays. Both of them are painted in Scripture as people committed to following God's commands, and that means that they've been chased. And I know I keep using old fashioned words for this because I don't want any parents to have to have discussions over lunch that they're not ready to have, but you get this, right? Even if Joseph somehow sticks with her, she's going to be an unmarried, pregnant teenager. And you think about the shame that comes with that even in our world, and you multiply that by like a hundred because of the shame that would come from that on the ancient world, that's what God is signing her up for. And what he's signing Joseph up for too if he stays. Clucking aunts and winking uncles. And sly jokes which are made all the more painful because this is the one time in history where both members of the couple can legitimately say that they didn't do the things that everyone is assuming that they did. And not only that, but what Gabriel is telling Mary could literally kill her. Literally. Literally. Infidelity was illegal in this world, and betrothal counted. And it wasn't usually carried out, but there are situations where wives and fiances were killed for getting pregnant with another man's son, that Joseph could lose it at the news, in some ways understandably, and he could publicly accuse her, and Mary could die all for something that God was doing to her. Mary is 13 or 14. And this terrifying divine warrior comes to her and says, Hey Mary, you're pregnant with the Messiah and your life is going to be ruined. This story reminds us that there are no little people, that everyone is significant in God's plan. It also reminds me that being a part of God's plan is not always going to be easy. In fact, it often won't be. We let this worldly idea of success creep into how we think about the Christian life. We think that walking with God will somehow equate with things going well. That doing stuff for Jesus is going to bring us comfort and admiration and praise. That's the idea of those terrible Christian books you see in the bookstore, right? With the the white smiling couple in front of their mansion on the cover talking about what it's like to follow Jesus. Mary is perhaps the most blessed human being to ever live, She is going to give birth to God, and it is a total nightmare. The idea that obeying God and walking with him will make life easier is just a lie. It's a straight-up lie, honestly, because the Bible actually promises the opposite. Here's how Peter says, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Or as Jesus himself tells his followers, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater Than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So we should never think that we must not be living the Christian life just because it's hard. Mary stands as a reminder of that fact, a reminder that God, following him, will often be costly and come with pain. At the same time, she's also in this moment a reminder of why we do it, why we would want. To live that kind of life that comes with hardship and suffering. Because it's worth it, right? This is the Messiah Mary is bringing into the world. This is Israel's deliverance. This is the salvation of mankind. The single person on whom all of history turns, the Lord made flesh. This is who Mary is going to bear. And that's why we should endure hardship in following Jesus too. Because it's worth it. We have the good news of this Jesus on our lips. We have his spirit in our hearts. I mean, I often roll my eyes, right, at like comic book or action movie kind of movies, you know, where um, where it's like we're going to save the world from some threat. We're going to save the world. But that's actually what we're here to do, to bring Jesus to people, to be Jesus to people. We and Mary are both part of God's mission of salvation in the world. So Mary reminds us that we matter to God's plan, and that it will be hard, but that it is worth it. But we're not done with the story. The angel answers Mary's question, and he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. So it's mystery time. You remember Mary asked the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel actually kind of explains the mechanics of it. Somehow he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and you'll have a child. Lots of commentators and people with doctoral degrees have written long books and treatises about what those words mean, and basically I can sum up all of their conclusions by saying that we don't have a clue, right? (laughs) That doesn't make sense. Here's what the church has always said to summarize Jesus. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully a human being, in every part, without changing either of those truths. So Jesus is, he's fully a human being, right? He has a human body, a human mind, a human will. He's 100% human, and he's fully God at the same time. You could could touch his body and meaningfully say, I'm touching God, right? Somehow the thoughts of God are within this human mind. And neither of those change each other. Having a body doesn't make it any less the Son, the third person of the Trinity that we're dealing with. Being a holy God doesn't mean that Jesus didn't get tired or that he wasn't tempted like we were. And all of that is completely mysterious in how it actually works. All I can say with Gabriel is that this is really Mary's son and really the son of God. And Gabriel doesn't really explain it either. He just points out to Mary that A, she's already close to a miracle God has done, that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant with John, and B, that no word from God will ever fail. God spoke And creation came into existence, he speaks, and Mary is pregnant with him. That said, while the mechanisms are mysterious, it's really a shocking and beautiful and crazy thing that we're being told. So we talk sometimes in the church about the humiliation of the cross, right? That Jesus um, suffers and dies on the cross, and there's this kind of horror to that. You think about that on Good Friday, right? You know, the whips that scourge his back, the nails driven through his wrists, the weight of his body hanging there, choking air from his lungs. In the crucifixion, we reflect on how God shows his love for us by being willing to suffer that kind of humiliation. But there is a humiliation to the incarnation, too, when we think about it rightly. A horror. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about the example of Christ's humility, of his humiliation. And he talks about the cross and the grave, but it starts for Paul before that. Starting in Philippians 2.6, Paul says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. I mean, just think about it for a minute. This being that is larger than the universe, right? Beyond time and space, he's suddenly bounded by the tips of human fingers and human toes. He somehow fit into a womb. This immortal, eternal being suddenly has a heartbeat. He has to breathe in and breathe out to stay alive. This all-powerful God somehow gets tired and hungry. He's dependent on food and drink that he created to keep him alive. God is born, right? I've watched my kids get born, which some of you may have done. And that, that, that is not an exalted position. God went through that process. God became a human being. It should be terrifying It'd be even almost disgusting to us, right? There's something almost blasphemous about that thought. But it should also make us wonder. And even more than that, right? Not just becoming a human being, um, that's unimaginably humiliating. But we talked just a minute ago, right, about Mary's situation, her place in the world. Maybe, just maybe, I could make that idea more palatable, right? I could stomach it better if it was like, Jesus was born the emperor of the planet Earth, right? You know, he kind of is born out onto a solid gold cushion as the the paparazzi are all around to take pictures and people are falling on their faces. But God is born as a nobody. He's mocked during his ministry for being a hillbilly. He's not particularly good-looking, Isaiah tells us. He's not from anywhere particularly important. That scandal... That Mary and Joseph bore. God bore that too. The son of God came of age. With his peers mocking him. For his birth. Calling God a bastard. God came. As a human being. And a human being that society looked on. As lowly. And shameful. And that should tell us two things. First. That should tell us that God loves us. He loves us. It sounds simple, but it's true. God is not a king who sits in heaven drumming his fingers on the arm of his throne, just waiting for us to get it right. He bends down to meet with us. He bends down so far that he is in our midst, so far that he becomes one of us. So look, back in elementary school, right, I was a weird kid. I guess I'm still a weird adult, um, I suppose. But, I mean, I, I remember a couple of kids coming up to me when I was in, f- like, fourth or fifth grade and telling me that in their Sunday school class they had learned that that one kid in their class who everyone thought was, like, a loser and strange and didn't want to spend time with, that they were supposed to be nice to that kid, so they were going to be nice to me today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing about being that kind of social outcast, right? You remember the people who stick up for you. I mean, I can clearly remember moments when that happened. Not just the people who weren't mean to you, right? That's nice. But the people who actually stepped in and tried to defend you when the kids were circling. I remember those moments. Because in those moments, the people who did that were actually sharing in my shame. That kids are vicious and standing up for somebody who's a social outcast like that, right? That comes with a cost. That means that you in many ways are stepping into the position where you're going to face the rejection and the humiliation too. And in the incarnation, God does that for us. He comes and stands beside us. He shares our shame. Love in this world is too often used to describe just a nice feeling that you have for people. But in scripture, love is always realized in action, in sacrificial action. And the greatest sign of love imaginable is the one that God shows to us. Stooping down from his glory in heaven to share our humanity. Stooping so low to share our shame. God loves us. And that should also lead us to a second conclusion, the second thing that God coming as a human being and a lowly and despised one in the eyes of the world should tell us, and that is that we should do the same. We should show that same kind of self-giving love that God shows us to others and show it especially to the kind of people that Jesus does. So we should show that love, right? And again, that doesn't just mean feeling lovey-dovey about humanity. It means that we, like Jesus, should engage in sacrificial action for others. We should come down off of our thrones and off of our high horses and seek to bless people in the way that he does. And we should show it to the kind of people that Jesus comes as. The least and the lowliest. Too often... The church becomes interested in serving those who are most respected, best off, the most dressed up and best looking. But like, the pregnant teenagers, right? The people without a house to sleep in, illegitimate children, hillbillies, and those that the world would consign to the category of sinner, those are the categories that would have applied either to Mary or to her son, our Lord. What does that look like in practice? Well, one way I know some of us have already tried to do that is by being mindful of places we could give, maybe forego a few gifts over the holidays or something and support the Rockford Pregnancy Care Center or the Rescue Mission or Rockhouse Kids, support some global charity that cares for the downtrodden and impoverished. So seriously, think about giving to those places in the holidays. Well, giving is a part of it, and if it's something that you've never done, it's something you should definitely think about this time of year. That can also be too easy, right? God does not just sit in heaven and sort of write a check that he hands to the earth for its salvation. God moves towards the earth. I remember back in college getting really interested in, um, in homelessness and in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where I went to college as homeless population. and I didn't have any money, so I started... Um, introducing myself to the homeless guys that would sit around downtown and sitting and talking to them and getting to know them, right? So I remember, like, the guy who would always tell me about these insane conspiracy theories that contradicted each other or this guy with incredibly long fingernails that, um, that would, like, play chess with me and destroy me in chess. And in college... Um, Yeah, I'd go sit with them, and I probably, honestly, in college, looked sort of like I fit in with them, right? In terms of how I dressed, and my hair, and things. So sometimes people treated me like I was one of them. And that made me realize two things. One, is that you can't imagine, I couldn't imagine how demeaning it was to be in that kind of place of social rejection until I was there. And people looked at you like you're an animal. At best, you are an annoyance that they wish would just go away. Never mind that going away was a thing that happened to some of those guys. And it usually involved a body bag and a funeral that nobody attended. And that was at best. At worst, they looked at you like you were a threat, right? I watched people cross the street so that they didn't have to walk by me. Sort of like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I realized that. But I also realized something else. And that is that the most meaningful thing that I could do for those people was just treat them, in the, in the face of that, like a human being. Get to know them. And look, in telling this story about me, I want to be careful. It's not like I was some saint. <laughs> like I cared for homeless people, right? This was maybe 20 times I went and just hung out with them over the course of a year. But here's the thing, just from that kind of like small gesture of humanizing and knowing those people, I mean like it was beautiful. Like they would call out my name whenever they saw me coming. I remember one night I was out with a girl and we we were getting accosted by this drunk guy, which happened pretty frequently in downtown Lincoln, um, and two of the homeless guys I knew came walking over and in no uncertain terms told the guy what would happen to him if he didn't immediately leave us alone. And um, the girl I was with wasn't quite sure what to make of that, but like that was... That was this beautiful moment to me, because suddenly, right, like, I had been able to be present with these people, and they were being present with me, and we were human beings who loved each other. It changed the whole, like, dynamic of relationship. So I guess the the question I'm reflecting on, thinking about what God does to be present with us, is where we can be present this Advent. Not just where we can give some resources, but where we can give ourselves. And it might not be as obvious as hanging out with homeless folks, right? It probably isn't for most of us. But there are a lot of people that society treats as if they're beyond notice. Go visit a nursing home. And maybe just go visit people in the nursing home who don't have family to visit them, right? Not just your relatives. Get to know those neighbors who everyone else in the neighborhood avoids and despises. Invite someone without a family over to share yours for Christmas. Make a gesture of care and identity towards somebody who society would otherwise see as unlovable or outside of the boundaries of that kind of care. Doing those things is just a tiny sliver of the kind of love that Christ shows to us in this story. All of which brings us to the end of that story. The angel has said all this and then Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. As we close, I just want to reflect on those words as we think about God's love for us and our calling to love. Here's Mary, a girl whose life God has just straight up ruined. She's about to go through pregnancy and face public scandal and might lose her marriage and maybe even her life, and all because of something that seems completely insane that the Holy Spirit is going to come on her and she's going to give birth to the Son of God. The thing that sets Mary apart in Scripture, that makes her a remarkable woman, is not that she's sinless, not that she's perfect. That idea arose over years in parts of the church um, as they tried to give her the honor that she does deserve. But the Bible never says that, and there are places like Mark 3, when she and the rest of Jesus' family try to drag him home and end his ministry, where it certainly seems like she's sinning. She's not perfect. But Mary trusts God. She submits herself to his will. Her response in hearing all of this is that, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said. Like we said earlier, obeying God isn't easy trusting him won't always lead to smooth sailing. Bowing the knee to him is no promise to things, that things will get better. In fact, in the short term, it probably means that they might get harder. But this is what it took for God to come into the world. This is what it took, from our human perspective, for ultimate love and salvation to be born. It took this teenager being willing to say, all right, this doesn't sound particularly nice, but if it's what God asks, I'll do it. And out of that simple act of faith, salvation is born. So let's walk into this Advent season seeking that same sort of faith in God and faithfulness to his calling. Because while things will often be hard, the beautiful truth of the Bible is that through such hardship, salvation is born. Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, I do, just even talking about it again, I am just, I just don't know what to say when I reflect on your love towards us. That a God who is holy and exalted in the heavens would stoop to become one of us, would take on flesh. That he would stoop so low as to not just be like the Lord on earth, but to be one who is poor and lowly, who is despised and mocked by the world. That just, And that just tears my heart open. Thank you for your love. May I and may we begin to let that love be something that teaches us to so love the world. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me? Amen. It is good to worship with you this morning. It's good to lean into this season of holy longing together. Jesus Christ has come and has shown us immeasurable love in this. As we go out together, enjoy each other's fellowship. There's coffee and treats and stuff available in the fellowship hall. Make sure, like I said, to thank someone for all the great decorating that happened late into the night last night, as I know. I am at least am super grateful for that. And um, go into this week with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace this day and forever. Amen.